you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. That's where we'll be spending our time this evening. Thomas Wolfe wrote a book entitled, You Can't Go Home Again. That book was about a man named George Weber, who was an author and became critically acclaimed, very successful, mainly because of a book he wrote about his hometown and the people of his hometown. And on a return visit home, Weber expected to be warmly received. Everyone would be ecstatic to see this hometown boy done good. And what he got was quite the opposite. Weber received jeers, shuns, and the people were ready to run him out of town. The reason why is they felt betrayed. They felt like what he had written in the book didn't paint them in the best light, and therefore they were angry. So rather than receiving a warm reception, he got quite the opposite. You can't go home again, he says. And that's really what we see in Luke chapter 4. Look with me, starting at verse 21. It says, And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of a cliff on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Now this may be the shortest sermon ever preached. If not the shortest, probably one of the shortest anyway. It says that Jesus received the book, as the New American Standard Version reads, but most scholars think that it wasn't a book like we would think of, bound with chapters and all that. Rather, it was a scroll. Nevertheless, he takes this scroll or this book, and he reads a portion from Isaiah 61, verses 1 through the first part of verse 2. And after reading it, he looks at the crowd and he says this, he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's it. End of sermon, time to dismiss and go to Golden Corral, right? But it infuriated the crowd. For whatever reason, and we're going to talk a little bit about that here as we go forward, the Jews did not like what they heard. What was Jesus getting at here, and what were the Jews so outraged about? You know, it kind of reminds me of the the couple who left church one Sunday morning and they got in their car and they were driving home and the woman looks at her husband and she said, did you see what that little Jones girl was wearing this morning? And the husband said, no, I, I didn't really pay attention. And she said, and what about that hairdo Miss Martin had? And the husband said, I, I didn't really see it. I didn't notice. And she said, what about Brother Frank? It looks like he's gained 50 pounds over the summer. And the husband said, I, I didn't really pay attention. 
And the woman gets extremely frustrated and says, I don't even know why you go to worship. Why do you go to worship? Why did these people gather to hear Jesus? What was it that they were hoping to get out of being there that day? I think it's important to note that Jesus made a habit of visiting the synagogue on the Sabbath. Of course, he was there to teach and to observe, but I also think it's noteworthy that Jesus likely disagreed with, them, with some things that took place there. I think, obviously, Jesus would have had a problem with some things, and yet he still went. I think there's a lesson there for us is that, you know, worship may not be perfect. We may be a little clumsy in our worship sometimes, but as long as it's not a doctrinal matter, right, then, you know, we look past the imperfection, and we, we understand that this is a human institution, and therefore we, we endure some things because we're human beings, right? But also, I think another lesson may be that preachers got to preach, right? And you see that with Jesus. He's there for a purpose. He's there to observe, but a preacher's got to preach. And he is there to do some preaching and teaching. He is there because he is called to be there, and he knows that he needs to be there. And he is there because, like Paul and the other apostles, anywhere they went, they were there to preach and teach. You may not know this, but I was recently the object of a certain group's uh, ire because I had preached in some places that they didn't agree with. This is a Church of Christ group that felt that Chris McCurley and some of his associations uh, put me out of fellowship with some in the Churches of Christ. And I'll tell you this, I make no apology for that. I will preach anywhere, anytime, any place, any venue, because a preacher's got to preach. Anytime, anywhere, any place, you tell me and I'll be there, right? Because when you have been, when you've been asked to speak somewhere, and maybe, maybe the audience doesn't necessarily fall in line with what you believe and teach, you still go, because that's what a preacher does. A preacher's got to preach. And when it comes to Jesus, the apostles, Paul, others that we read about in the New Testament, you see that play out over and over again. Anytime, anywhere, any place. I got to go, I got to deliver the message, because that's what it was about. Jesus comes into the synagogue and he sits down because that's what you did when you were going to teach. The rabbi sat down and he was about to impart knowledge to them. And so he sits down and I don't care if, if it's a great sermon, if it's a mediocre sermon, if it's a lackluster sermon, if it's a short sermon, that's usually a good thing. You can usually get by with preaching short sermons. Even if they aren't great, you can get by with it. I've had people walk up to me after I delivered a lesson and said something like, I could have listened a lot longer, and I appreciate that. I appreciate when people say that. I've never had anyone take me to task for going long, although I've heard some people drop hints every now and then, like mother saying I almost ran out of Cheerios. And I understand. I tried to be aware of your time and how long that you can hold your child in the pew. But preachers are often told to stand up, speak up, and shut up, right? I mean, that's what we're supposed to do. But typically, you're not going to get in trouble for preaching a short, a short sermon. In fact, if preachers were paid by the hour, they'd probably be paid for shorter sermons. So Jesus is speaking here. He's a guest preacher, if you will. And the last thing you want to do if you're a guest preacher is to be the one that goes long. Yeah, I preached somewhere not long ago, and they said, well, you know, when we, when we get done with the opening prayer and the song service and all that, you'll have about 50 minutes. And I said, well, that's about 20 minutes too long. 
I said, you're going to get done early. I do not want to be the guy who goes too long. I don't want to be the guy that when they say his name, the, the people in the audience go, oh, yeah, I remember that guy. He spoke for 50 minutes last time. And here's Jesus, the guest speaker in the synagogue, and he preaches a rather short sermon. And the people aren't happy about it. In fact, they're outraged and they're ready to throw him down a cliff. Now, I've had people get upset with me over something I said in a sermon. Not intentionally. I, I didn't mean many times to say something that would incite a riot. You know, I, I may misspeak here and there and I have to apologize for that later. I do admit that sometimes I've said something that needed to be heard that I knew would probably not set well with someone. But here's Jesus saying things that needed to be said, and the people weren't happy about it. But again, a preacher's got to preach, right? You know what the most controversial sermon I've ever preached was? I've preached it here, but it's actually controversial somewhere else, and that was a series on Bible translations. You learn really quick that people have a, an affinity for their Bible translation. And you start talking about the flaws of all the Bible translations, because they all have flaws, none of them are perfect, you start talking about how the King James is not the, the standard necessarily. It's, good, it's a good uh, version of the Bible, but it's, you know, the King James only folks get, get kind of upset. You talk about how the NIV is not the monster that people have made it out to be. People get upset. But you talk about how there are so many Bible translations out there. Some of them are not worth the pages they're printed on. Some of them aren't as bad as people think. But you start talking about someone's translation that they use that they hold near and dear, and you get some people pretty upset. Now, thankfully, you guys didn't when I preached that lesson here, and I appreciate that. I had one woman get upset one time because I said that the King James was not the version that Paul used. But anyway, <laughs> back to our text. How could, how could a couple of verses from the book of Isaiah and a nine-word summary cause so much disruption? How could just two tiny verses, really a verse and part of a verse, and a nine-word summary set people's hair on fire. Well, remember that these folks knew Jesus. He was one of their own. You even saw that there. Isn't this Joseph's son, right? They knew who he was. No doubt that they had heard what he was doing, turning water into wine and you know, controlling the weather and all those things. And by the time Jesus arrived back at Nazareth, he had a reputation. Perhaps the people were waiting to be impressed by his preaching. Understand also that the Jews were no strangers to Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. They knew it very well. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he said Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 out loud. It's very likely that they were mouthing the words to themselves as he was saying it and nodding their head in agreement. They knew exactly what it said because it was one of the most famous passages in all the Old Testament. Isaiah is bringing a message of hope. We've talked about this before. The prophet is painting a picture of a future glory. As you know, the Israelites had a very checkered past, to say the least. One particular time when, uh, when their past was not all that uh, uh, famous was the fact that they were taken captive into captivity by the Babylonians. And so concepts like hope and glory would seem rather far-fetched at that time as they're living in exile. But 
Isaiah is speaking of a day, some 700 years before it actually happens, when the Messiah is going to come bringing freedom and hope and a new kingdom. And this new kingdom would include a new demographic. And that's one of the reasons why the Jews were so upset. What is this guy talking about? Why is he mentioning Gentiles when we all know that Jews are the only ones chosen by God, the only ones that are going to be, made, uh, are going to be in heaven? In fact, Many Jews believe that God made Gentiles for the sole purpose of fueling the fires of hell. So how does this man stand here before us, claiming to be a rabbi and teach us, claiming to be the son of man even, and to say that the Gentiles are going to be grafted in? He told the truth, which is what we all must do. I wish every preacher would tell the truth. It was at President Gerald Ford's funeral that the minister stood up and he quoted John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, period. He stopped there. Now, that's not the end of that verse. There's more to it, right? But he didn't add on, no one can come to the Father but through me. Why do you think he left that off? With the TV cameras on, with everybody there, well, probably because of the controversy it would spark. Even though it's biblical, too many preachers choke. They choke. It's on the line. The truth is on the line and they choke. I mean, you see it all the time with these famous quote-unquote pastors that are on television and they're asked hard questions by the interviewer and they choke. Truth is on the line and they cower down. They hunker down and they won't tell the truth. Yet many Christians today, even facing much lesser threats, don't tell the truth. And that's unfortunate as well. But the audience in the synagogue that day would have had no problem with Jesus reading from Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1 and 2. They would have fully understood the message that was being conveyed because to them that message was very clear. It's sort of like, uh, remember Bob Ross? Remember the painter with the uh, big hair? It was so calming, so soothing. Isaiah's painting a picture here, and you imagine it like Bob Ross. You know, he's got this, you know, this beautiful horizon over here, and, and the horizon has a little friend, and we'll call that friend glory. And right here in the middle, we're going we're gonna to put a person, and we're going to call that person Jesus, right? That would be so much better if I could do the Bob Ross voice, but you get the idea. Isaiah has painted a picture. And it's the same picture that we see painted throughout the Old Testament, especially with the minor prophets. We often call Isaiah the Messianic prophet, but Zechariah could certainly wear that moniker as well. If you look at Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, it says these words, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, he is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I mean, is there any doubt who Zechariah is talking about here? You don't have to be a genius to figure this one out. He's talking about the victorious one, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who is going to bring salvation, the one that the people were waiting for. I mean, like Isaiah, Zechariah is painting a picture, and it's the same picture. It's one of hope and, 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 and a coming of a kingdom. It's... It's a message that God has not done with his people. It's a message that people living in exile needed to hear. That there is hope on the horizon. You look at chapter 13 of Zechariah, verse 1, it says, In that day 
A fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Do you know who Zechariah is speaking to here? He's speaking to us. I mean, I know that we're not the original audience, but still, he's speaking to us. The picture he is painting is just as relevant today as it was back then. The defeat of sin is coming. God's people, who were hoping for a defeat of their enemies, they never wanted to return to slavery, but one was coming who would defeat an enemy far more powerful than the Assyrians or the Romans. The Messiah was coming to release the devil's prisoners. He was coming to defeat sin and death. In Zechariah 12, verse 10, it says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. What's he talking about? Jesus would come as king and as high priest and he would deal with sin. He would set the captives free. He would, he would do it by being struck and by being pierced. Some would reject the good shepherd and therefore he would break his covenant with them. He would open up the kingdom for all so that the Gentiles could be grafted in. No longer could the Jews just count on their heritage to save them. No longer would they be classified as the only chosen ones. Salvation would be only found in Jesus Christ like it would be for anyone. And the people who rejected this would be rejected by him. God had protected and sustained these people for so long and they were going to miss out on salvation if they didn't accept the free gift of grace that comes through Jesus Christ. So please hear me on this. We cannot afford to miss this. We live in that time that the prophets spoke about so long ago. The Christian age is here. We live in it. For Zerubbabel, Joshua, Haggai, Zechariah, they were all longing for what we have now. The painting is complete. The picture Isaiah and the other prophets paint is finished. The Messiah has come. The kingdom is here. The Jews were not unfamiliar with this picture. They knew it well. They were very familiar with this picture. The problem that they had was the picture of the Messiah and the kingdom because it was so different than what they expected. It didn't match the one that, that they thought it should match. They read the prophets differently. They heard what they were saying differently. So when Jesus said, it's a self-portrait, that's what got them so upset. That's why they became outraged. Because he was putting himself in the painting. In essence, Jesus is saying, I'm the figure that's in the painting. I am here. I am the grand finale. I am the end. I am the completion. I am the fulfillment of God's plan. Everything that those prophets talked about and pointed to is me. I am here. I match the description. I have the fingerprints of the Messiah. It is me. That's what set their hair on fire. That's why they were so upset. He said, I am the anointed one. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. He's here and you're looking at him. Look at Isaiah 61 again. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, 
and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Folks, every phrase paints a picture here. Every word is dripping with mercy. But I want you to notice that every picture depicts the same scene. The Messiah is coming, and he's coming to release the people from the bondage of sin. That's what the Messiah was coming to do. That's what Jesus was coming to fulfill. Those hearing Jesus speak these words should have been ecstatic. They should have been rushing him and dogpiling him and, and, and hugging him, praising him. They should have been overwhelmed with joy, maybe gone out to the entrance of the city and put up a sign that said, Nazareth, hometown of Jesus the Messiah, but they didn't do that. Instead, they were ready to throw him off a cliff. Sadly, the Jews couldn't see the picture. Do we? Do we see the picture? Now, I know you know about Jesus. I know you know who Jesus is. I know many of you have been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You understand about the death, burial, and resurrection. You know all the facts. You've read through the Bible perhaps many times. Like the Jews, you know all the familiar passages. But do you see this picture? Do you rehearse it over and over again? The Spirit of God is upon you. The Lord has commissioned you to bring the good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. God has called you to comfort those who mourn and to glorify Him. Do you see this picture that was painted in Isaiah that we are now living? I know you see Jesus. But do you see you in all of this? Do you find yourself in the painting? You are God's method. You realize that, don't you? The story of Israel is now our story. We have been chosen. We have been grafted into the kingdom. What the prophets anticipated, what they talked about, what they pointed to is here. We are a kingdom dweller. And as kingdom dwellers, you know what our number one responsibility is? It's to be storytellers. We tell the story. Like the prophets, like Jesus, like the apostles, we too must tell the story. We should be painting a picture. It's a picture of a risen Savior. It's a picture of victory. And hopefully when we tell that story to others, they will welcome it and receive it and not want to throw us off a cliff. But we got to tell the story. We are the story. And we've got to narrate it for others. You know, there are some biblical scholars that think that there was more to Jesus' sermon here in Luke 4. They say that it was really a lot longer, that whatever you read there is just a summary and that's it, but there's more to it. I don't know if that's true or not, and it doesn't really matter. That's not the point. The point is Jesus said everything he needed to say right here. Everything he needed to say, he said. Jesus pointed to himself as the only way to life with God, and he declared himself to be the Savior who takes away sin. And if a sermon can accomplish that, long or short, that's a great sermon, isn't it? And so, that's where we conclude the sermon tonight. Are you in Christ? If not, then why not? 
And if you want to learn how to be in Christ, thank you for not putting your stuff up, by the way. If you're not in Christ, you'd like to learn how to be in Christ, then come see me. Come see Jake. Come see Blake. Come see one of our elders, and we'd certainly love to study with you. Maybe you've been thinking about that. Maybe, maybe you realize that the picture has been painted, and you're not in the picture, but you'd like to be. It's not hard to get in it. Like we said this morning, the Spirit, God, Jesus, have done everything short of forcing us against our will as they offer that free gift of grace. Accept it. And if you are a child of God, if you understand what it means to be a disciple, then be a storyteller. As a kingdom dweller, be a storyteller. And let's try to influence as many people as we can. So if you have a need, Caleb's going to sing a song. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.